Now, during the last days uh, of his life, Steve Jobs, the founder of the technology giant Apple, sat down with his biographer to tell his story. You know, he was coming to the end of his life, and he, he wanted to leave, uh, if you like, his uh, faithful account or his own account of his own life. He was losing the battle with cancer. So his biographer I wanted to know Steve Jobs' thoughts on the afterlife. What do you think about life after death? Steve said to him, well, <clears throat> I am 50-50 on believing in God. For most of my life, I felt that there must be more, something more to our existence than meets the eye. I would like to think that something survives after you die. It is strange to think that I've accumulated all of this experience and a little bit of wisdom along the way, and then it just goes away. As I thought about Steve Jobs' words, they reminded me that there is something in all of us, even the very rich, that longs and desires for permanency, meaning, connection to something greater. We look at our lives and we wish there was something more to us. We are longing for meaning, purpose. We want our lives to matter, uh, to have a hope for the future. All of us are like that. And the Bible says this longing for something that gives us meaning in our lives is actually a longing for, not for something, but for someone. The God who created us. We are really longing for a person, not things. You see, God created us to find meaning and purpose in him. But we evicted God, didn't we, from our lives in the Garden of Eden. And so now we have been left with what the televangelists are always keen to remind us. We have been left, which is true, we have been left with a God-shaped hole in our lives. We are yearning to fill that void through, of course, many things we do. And indeed, life itself, really, is a search, us trying to fill that God-shaped void in many ways. But the sensation of good news of Jesus, of the Bible, really, is that we don't have to do this on our own. Uh, God has reached out to us again. He has come to give us meaning, purpose, connection to himself, through the cross of Jesus, and ultimately through his spirit living in us, that echoes those words that Jesus says, isn't it? Because I live, you shall also live, because the Holy Spirit himself lives in us. And we've been resurrected with Christ if we're trusting in him. We can find meaning, purpose. We can share, as Peter says, in the divine life now. We no longer need to be alone. We can truly find belonging in God. But the sad reality of course, is that the attitude of many of us, even those of us who have come to faith in Jesus, is, or who, believe, who claim we believe in Jesus, is actually no different from Steve Jobs. Right? Instead of a wholehearted trust in Jesus, even though we say we are 100% with Jesus, many of us live 50-50. Half-hearted trust in Jesus. That's the reality. So my goal briefly this morning uh, is just to encourage all of us, all of us here, young and old, to encourage us to have full trust in Jesus, not 
And we'll do this as we continue exploring the book of Mark. As you know, for those of you who have been with us, the book of Mark is one of the four eyewitness accounts of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And we've been going through this verse by verse. Uh, today we are in Mark chapter 8, uh, verse 13 to verse 21. Just turn with me there. Uh, you remember just before we look at this that last Sunday, where did we leave Jesus? We left Jesus facing opposition at Dalmanutha. That was Sunday evening. We said that was on the western side of the Sea of Galilee, somewhere perhaps near Gennesaret. And you remember that Jesus, uh, these this Pharisees came to Jesus, didn't they? They tried to trap Jesus by demanding a sign from him. And Jesus just gave them the best put down I've ever seen. He just told them flatly, no sign will be given to you. And he got up, left, went into the boat. That's what we read in verse 13, isn't it? And he left them. Look at that, Mark 8, verse 13. 13. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now, while they are on the other side, they are living now in the boat, an interesting conversation takes place, actually, while they are on the boat, between Jesus and the disciples. And this conversation is... We, we, when, when I was looking at this, I thought there are two sermons here, so we're just going to abbreviate it and look at one dimension of it. But there are three essential lessons, I think, that we can summarize this profound conversation. And I think it's one in which you need to spend time to read this passage again, because we can never do, of course, justice to it. But especially to, to any part of Scripture, we can't really do justice to it. But especially this passage, there's so much for us to learn here. I just want to briefly uh, scan three lessons, but I really do encourage you to go home and study it for yourself. There are three things. The first thing is, this passage, first of all, teaches us we are not enough. We might say, the world is not enough, but we ourselves are not enough. Look at, uh, as I said, Jesus is heading in this boat, sailing towards Bethsaida. That's actually north from the west, going up north now. And everything there in this boat, and everything seems well, but someone notices in the boat that something is missing. There's something they forgot to carry with them as they got into the boat. I think the reason for this actually is that probably Jesus left the Pharisees perhaps quickly. We get the impression that he just got up and said, Guys, we're going. I've told you what you need to do. If you're not listening, I'm off. I know if he went, right? <laughs> right? Of course, in a measured way, but he had had enough. And he had told them, and he got up. And I think it seems like in getting up, they have actually forgotten, the disciples have forgotten to bring something. Something is missing. Let's read verse 14. Now they had forgotten to bring bread. Remember they had like seven basket loads of bread after the, after the miracle of the 4,000. But they seemed to have forgotten to bring bread. And it goes on to say, they had only one loaf with them in the boat. Just very little. Now, many of us, I think, have been on a journey, you have packed everything, and you are, know that you have everything you need. You got that book you really wanted to, to read on the holiday, you packed it in, and you think you have, and that camera, that item of clothing. Uh, but when you get to the other side, <laughs> it turns out you only thought you had packed something. You didn't actually pack everything you thought, something you really needed. And of course, if you're in a group, uh, you can maybe turn to your wife and say, did you pack that? I thought you packed that. So that, so that seems what has happened to the disciples. They, they thought they had packed everything, but actually they had it. And they had left behind bread. Um, 
that they must have had, I guess, from the leftovers, or perhaps it was something that they bought, depending on how long Jesus had been at Dalmanutha. They, they had some bread, but they left the bread behind. Now, in ancient Israel, bread is the knife and fork of every meal. Every meal is, must always be served with bread. You, you can't eat anything in ancient Israel without bread. So, even though for us, bread is something like, what's the big deal you left bread behind? We can go to Morrison's and Sainsbury's. Well, that's not the case for them, right? Uh, they can do without it. And there's definitely no shopping mall that they can easily just walk in and, 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 and get bread from there. So they are really worried about them. They're really worried about the bread. It's priceless to them. And it seems lacking this bread, lacking food essentially now, is worrying them a bit. We know that because when Jesus says something in verse 15, they totally do not even get what Jesus is on about. They're still thinking about the bread. Let's read verse 15 to verse 16. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the living of the Pharisees and the living of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Uh, it's, it's like when we are guilty about something we've done, right? Uh, or something we, you know, something we shouldn't have done. And then another person mentions something sort of related to what has happened, right? And you immediately think that person is attacking you, right? That happens to all of us. When in fact, they are only mentioning that point tangentially. They are not going on about your issue. They just mention, but because it's in your mind, you now think it's about you. That's what's happening to the disciples here. Jesus mentions the leaven or yeast, right? And they think, bread, oh, he must really be annoyed perhaps that we left the bread. And uh, he must be really concerned that we've done this thing. But of course, that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's warning them, in verse 15, not to allow the chaos of life to destroy their hearts. And we will come back to that later. That is essentially what he's warning them. But the point I want us to see just now is that the disciples, their preoccupation is about the chaos of this world. And they are living out a truth that all of us know, but don't always admit, isn't it? We are finite human beings. They have found out that they have a bad bad memory. And instead of just accepting it, it's concerning them, right? But they need to realize a truth that all of us need to realize, I think, that we are finite human beings. We are not enough. The, The other day, I was trying to pull aside, pull outside, uh, my daughter's primary school, right? We were picking her up and we're tr- I was trying to pull out, you know, in the car. I'd parked and I was trying to pull out. And all of a sudden, I had looked very well that day that, the, you know, everything was, the course was clear, you know, there was no cars coming. Uh, I looked in back twice, right? But immediately I pulled out. A car immediately came, you know, quite a lot, right? And it was very, very close. And of course, I was carrying Eunice was, um, and, and Abigail at the back. And, and I was quite worried, shaken by all of that. It was a very close, nearly, it was, it was nearly a major accident. It would have been. Now, I'd love to say it was the other driver's 
foot. I'd love to say, you know, the devil was driving the other car, right? That's what I would love to say. But in fact, it's not, that's not true at all. I made a major error in my driving. I made a serious error. And it was, I think, my fault. But on the other hand, I was just being human. I had looked twice, right? And just my humanity failed me at that point. And I think about that, I'm thinking to myself, all of us face many situations like that in life where our humanity just lets us down. None of us are perfect and powerful enough to look after ourselves in every situation. And I I think we need to let that truth sink in because we know this truth, but we forget it. And this is the reason I think many of us find ourselves worrying. It is, after that happened, I was very, I was still thinking about it for an hour or so. What would have happened? I was not willing to accept that I'm just in God's care, actually. And the truth of the matter is that that could happen any time, right? We forget that we are not enough. And I think this is one of the reasons that we, we are like that, is that we live in a society that doesn't remind us enough of our fragility, our finitude, our fallenness, as human beings. We are told you are the center of the universe. You have limitless potential. The adverts are screaming at that like that. We tell our children, you can be anything you ever want to be in life. But as parents, of course, we know that because we've tried to be anything. Right? We haven't been anything we've ever wanted to be. But we tell our children that, don't we? We sometimes remind people in our lives, you don't need anyone else. You can do it on your own. And you know what? Many people hear that and they believe it. And what happens is that when they fail to live up to such high expectations of themselves, what happens? They come crashing down. As I thought about this issue, I thought this is perhaps one of the reasons why as a society now, as we have become more, I am the center, I am the center, me and my rights, of course, it is no surprise that that is being paralleled by an epidemic, of course, in mental breakdowns and mental uh, health issues. People are being promised so much, and they are finding that life can't deliver all of that. And of course, they break down. I think it is also one of the reasons that suicide rates among young people is at an historical high among young people. It is the highest it's ever been. It's just rising like that among young people. Why? Because there's no room for failure in our society anymore. Many of our young people are growing without a realistic perspective on life. And I think as parents, of course, meeting this family service, we need to think about that. How are we reminding our children that they're human? They can fail. But when they do fail, Jesus is always there to to, to lift them up, as it were. Are, you, are we reminding that they are not enough? They, what they need is Jesus, the man, the God for all situations. And that's the second truth we learn here, isn't it? That we learn that we need to stop relying on ourselves and we need to look to the one who is enough, the Lord Jesus. That's the second truth. So Mark 8 there, uh, Mark 8, Mark chapter 8, uh, verse um, 17 to 18 particularly makes this point. 
Uh, we, 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 let's rejoin the disciples, as we said there. The disciples uh, do not get what Jesus is on about in verse 15 there, in Mark chapter 8. They think he's talking about the bread, like, like they are talking about the bread. So Jesus, to correct their thinking, uh, fires off, if you like, some bullets of questions at them. Uh, he wants to show them that his main concern is their hearts, not the bread they're missing. Let's read verse 17. Uh, verse 16 says, And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Verse 17. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? He's just firing questions at them. The last question is really revealing, isn't it? Do you not remember? What have they forgotten? Well, as Brother Michael noted there, they've forgotten who Jesus really is. Uh, as he noted as he was reading. It is not the bread they have forgotten, but the one who created the bread. They have forgotten the one who performed the miracle of the bread. Of feeding the 5,000 and the 4,000. That's what Jesus reminds them. Look at verse 19 to verse 21. Jesus says, what's jog their memory? When I broke the five loaves of the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not understand? Now, we've gone through these miracles, um, and so we're not going to go through them again. But we understand the question Jesus is asking is, do, you've seen this, you've sat under sermons, you've heard about Jesus, do you still not get it? You see, the big issue is not that you forgot the bread, Jesus is saying. The issue is that you forgot me, the bread of life. The disciples know that Jesus is with them in the boat, but somehow... They still do not fully appreciate that this person, Jesus, is God among them. They do not understand that Jesus did the feeding of those 4,000 and 5,000 to show them that two things, this is what we learned, to show them that he's the perfect provider, he fed the 5,000, only small packed lunches were left, so to speak, 12 of them, food for the journey, perfect provision. And we learned last week, now, they did the miracle of the 4,000 and left those spiruses, we call them, because in the original language, isn't it? Big buckets, if you like, man sized baskets, right? Seven of them, to show that he can, it's not that he gets his match wrong, no, to show that he's an, over, he's an abandoned provider. He not only provides perfectly, he's able to provide more than we need. So, Jesus. He's reminding them of this. I'm the perfect and abundant provider. And this is the truth we need to understand and take to heart, isn't it? Because when I look at these disciples, as I read it, I thought, it, my first impression was like, how can they forget, right? But then I realized that we're all guilty of forgetting. We need to understand that Jesus is enough for all situations because Jesus is God dressed in the rags of human flesh. Jesus is God who has come to die for our sins so that we can have life with God. 
so that he can satisfy us with himself. But the tragedy is that women know all of that theologically, right? But in moments of life, we may still forget to look to Jesus as our provider, our all-sufficient provider. And many people who profess faith in Jesus are like that. They know Jesus is enough, but they're still looking to themselves as if they are enough. You know that you exist only because God is sustaining and providing for you. You get that theologically. You know that there have been moments you have prayed for things, and God has answered your prayers. If you give a prayer journal, you can go to it, you can see, he answered here and here and here. You know that. You know this God is real. And yet, like these disciples, you often still find yourself trusting yourself rather than in. You're still worrying that you don't have enough. You're still worrying that you've only got one loaf. You've got little strength in life. You're still worrying about things in your life, old age, other things. When you forget that Jesus can sustain that. You're still forgetting that Jesus gave you your children, yet you worry constantly about your children. We sometimes doubt, even in, in terms of Jesus has told us, we can come to him in prayer, but we still doubt his words, don't we? We doubt whether our faith is enough for Jesus to respond to us based on our faith. When we forget that he doesn't respond to us really based on our faith, he works through faith, but he, he responds to us based on his grace alone. And so we need to understand that we are in the boat here with Jesus. We doubt. This is us. We doubt his provision. We don't recognize, we don't always remember that Jesus is enough for all our situation. Beloved, Jesus does not want you to doubt him. He wants you to pull your full weight on him, not lean on yourselves. He doesn't want you to pull yourself by the bootstraps. He wants you to cling to him, to look to him. And that's the final point we see in this passage, isn't it? We must trust Jesus wholeheartedly. And to do that, we need to go back to verse 15, because it's the heart of this. We can have a whole sermon just on verse 15. We see that in verse 15, Jesus here uses what we might call a visual head, right? Uh, to teach the disciples and us why it is important to wholeheartedly believe Jesus is enough for us. Look at verse 15. And he cautioned them, saying, Why are you dis... What? Is that one of them? Yeah. Sorry. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, right? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Interesting word there, isn't it? What is a leaven? Well, <laughs> I had to look that one up. Uh, I thought I knew it. But I did know it, actually, it turns out. Eleven is a substance like yeast, the dictionary tells us, or baking powder. We don't use it all the time, this word, do we? We just say yeast, right? I was trying to pronounce that word myself. But something like that, yeast, baking powder, right? Of course, something you add to the flour dough, you know, I'm not a baker, but if you've been on bake or whatever it is, you know that sort of stuff. Something you do, uh, you see it on bake right? You add it to the flour, uh, those of you who are expert cooking at this sort of thing, you add it to the, to the flour dough and you make it rise, isn't it? It, it? it ferments and it expands the dough. That's yeast, right? And uh, the thing about yeast is very interesting that Jesus would use this metaphor because yeast really is a small amount, right, that you add to the flour and it expands the flour, doesn't it? You know, the dough, right? 
And it infects, if you like, the whole batch of the bread dough, expanding its size. Jesus is saying the Pharisees and Herod have something small that's growing inside of them. It started off small, but it's now gripping their hearts and it now controls them. Think of the mustard seed we looked at, but this is a similar metaphor. The mustard seed is a positive metaphor, but Jesus is using the yeast here as a negative metaphor. Something that has the same effects, like a mustard seed, but actually it's just doing bad, right? Now, we have to ask ourselves as we come to this passage, it's exercised many minds that have looked at this, uh, those who are paid to do such jobs of writing commentaries. Some of them have looked at it and have pondered, what does Jesus mean by this? But actually, it is good we are going through the Bible verse by verse, because we've met Herod, we've met the Pharisees, and actually, the question we have to ask ourselves is that when we think about Herod, who we met in chapter 6, and the Pharisees we've been meeting since chapter 1, I think, we simply have to, or chapter 1 or chapter 2 of Mark, we just have to ask ourselves, what have we seen in the Pharisees and Herod in Mark so far that is common about them? And there are many things actually that are common about them, uh, but one of the things I think that struck me is that they are both refused to believe the good news of Jesus. Herod heard the truth from John the Baptist that he must repent and show his repentance by getting rid of Herodias, so to speak. And for a while, he liked what John was saying, but he was awakened to the truth, you might say, but he never truly repented. And so when pressure increased on him from his wife, he ended up killing John the Baptist. But the effect of killing John the Baptist meant that when Herod now heard Jesus was coming, you remember that? Uh, he was actually full of guilt and he was worried that John had risen from the dead. He says, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. And so we learned in the sermon, one of the sermons that we looked at, you can find it online, we learned the important lesson from Herod, isn't it? That what happened to Herod is that his sin had blinded him from seeing Jesus. The guilt, the unbelief had grown and grown in Herod and it had quenched any possibility of repentance. We might say Herod really perhaps is the third soil uh, in the parable of the sower, if you're looking at Mark chapter 4, where there's some growth that takes place, but the thorns grow and they choke the world. Unbelief was choked in Herod. And eventually what will happen to Herod is that he will have a hand in killing Jesus. That's important. The same thing is happening to the Pharisees, isn't it? They are hearing the good news of Jesus. They are experts. They have seen Jesus perform amazing miracles. And yet they are refusing to bow the knees. They have already concluded that Jesus is actually demon-possessed. We saw that in Mark chapter 3. They have been waiting for God, and when God shows up, they don't like him. Unbelief has taken place. The yeast of unbelief is what's common to both of them. And it's affecting the parts of their heart. And the Pharisees themselves will soon kill Jesus. Another pile of that, isn't it? They will have a hand in killing Jesus, whom they are meant to worship. So, Jesus really here is saying to them that be wary, right? Beware that there's no root of unbelief that grows in you. And give such fruit towards the end that 
eventually you just are not, you prove that you are never genuinely converted. Jesus is warning them, you cannot be half-hearted about me. You either believe I'm all that you need, or you are truly not standing with me. Either you have Jesus 100% or you don't. But he's warning us that there may be something in the middle there, right, where we are awakened to the things of truth, like Herod was. We know some of the truth as the Pharisees did, but yet that actually is mixed in with unbelief that in the end proves that we're never converted. Again, the, the third soil, perhaps even the second soil, is what's pointing. We may be like that rather than the fourth good soil that truly believes. We may think we are okay. This is the other point. The history reminds us that we may think we are okay, but when you put history in, you can't see it. It's put it, it's mixed in with the flower, isn't it? We can't actually isolate unbelief, if you like, from what may be going on in our lives. We may think we are okay and only discover until it's too late that actually we've been infected with deep unbelief. And so Jesus wants us to make clear from the beginning that make sure your faith in Jesus is real. And Jesus is now, he's not saying here that somehow you may have true faith in Jesus and eventually you start unbelieving and then you end up like that. No, that's not what he's saying. You may end up full of unbelief. So Jesus is saying, Either you have truly received the new heart, or you haven't. If you receive the new heart, you will grow like a mustard seed, right? If you haven't received a new heart, well, your growth pattern, even if you know a lot about Jesus, will be like yeast. Mustard seed for the believers, true believers. Yeast for those that have been awakened to the things of God. They've seen something of Jesus, but they've never really had true conversion. And Jesus wants to ask us, which one are you? He's asking first the disciples. Now, put yourself in the shoes of the disciples. I think this must be very hard for them to listen to Jesus. I thought about Peter. I thought about John. I thought about Simon the Zealot. I thought about Matthew the tax collector. I put myself in the shoes of Matthew. I'm hearing Jesus warn me like this. I've left my business for Christ. I have embraced others that I couldn't get on with for Jesus. I'm in the boat with him. I've left my family, my career. I'm with Jesus here. I thought about Matthew is my hero, really. (laughs) These are men we look to. They have sacrificed everything for Jesus. They've sacrificed more than I will ever sacrifice, really. And a lot of them will be martyred at the end of this for Jesus. But Jesus warns them. He warns them. And verse 15 there says, he cautioned them it's not strong enough. Because the original word for cautioning means he gave an order. It's, think military order. It's, it's a military style command. Watch out. Beware. And I think this reminds us that what Jesus is really saying here is that he wants us to be clear that following him is not about being around him. It's not about being in the boat with Jesus. You can be in the boat with Jesus, but your heart will still be in Dalmanutha with the Pharisees. It's not even about owning the apostolic office. Because we might wonder, why does he need to talk to people who are just given appointments as elders in the first New Testament church? The apostles. He appointed them as 12 apostles. You think probably they don't need that because they're already trusting in Jesus. 
But they need to hear it, don't they? Because Jesus is reminding them that following him is a heart affair. It means Jesus giving us a new heart that wholeheartedly loves him. That then would then see itself growing as a mustard seed rather than as one infected by yeast. They must be growing. We must be growing like that. Yes, we stumble, but there must be marked increase in loving Jesus, loving his people more. Clear signs that we are the good soil that brings 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. Now, if our hearts are not truly converted to Jesus, if we do not believe that Jesus is not all we need, then we may hear great stuff, sermons, but actually there will be always, we may find out too late, really, that we will never really bow the knee to Christ. So this is not an empty warning. Um, and we must remember that among the people in the boat, who's there in the boat? There's a man called Judas there. I think of all the people who are in the boat, listen to Jesus, I'm thinking, Judas is hearing this. He's there. He's a treasurer. He's listening to everything that Jesus is saying. And yet we know that later on, Judas will show proof of the living of the Pharisees and Herod. He will have a hand, a serious hand, in killing Jesus. He will help crucify Jesus. He heard the sermon that day between Darmanuth and Bethesda as Jesus warned him. But he never bowed his knees to Christ. And I wonder if there are people here listening to this message of Christ today. And yet you still not respond. You won't respond because you can't see the yeast of unbelief in your life. You are not willing to hear. You are hearing the message of Jesus just like Judas heard. Jesus is saying, you must have wholehearted trust in him. Only he is enough. But you have somehow taken on other teachings of the Pharisees and other things. <coughs> Judas, like, like Judas that day in the Sea of Galilee, you have heard, but instead of surrendering to Jesus, you feel just because you are in the boat with Jesus, you are okay. I wonder if there is someone listening to me right now who thinks like Judas. You go on about this thing. Uh, you, you feel perhaps this is all too negative. It's not necessary for me to remind you about these things. Well, why can't you be more positive? Well, we're going through the Bible verse by verse. But the point is that the Lord Jesus himself at this point is deeply negative about what he's looking at as he looks out. He's warning them as a father. And that's actually that's a positive thing. We want to be warned that make your election and calling sure, as Peter says. I wonder if there's someone here who says, I'm all right because I regularly attend church. I'm all right because I know the catechisms. I'm all right because I'm very gifted and I can preach. I'm all right because I'm, I'm, in a, I'm, I'm, I'm married to a very godly man. I'm all right because I said the sinner's prayer. I'm all right because I've seen God work powerfully sometimes through my life, as Judas did. I think salvation, beloved, must be in the present tense. Not have you turned to Christ, but are you in Christ now? 
Does Jesus have your heart now? Do you have his? And secondly, are you growing? This is vital. Is there growth in true surrender to Christ? Because that's the question. And as I said, we could have two sermons. But that is the question, isn't it? And what we, therefore, the takeaway for us this morning from this rather, we might say, difficult passage is to use verse 17 to verse 19 all the way to verse 21 and ask ourselves these questions that are there. Am I increasingly preoccupied with things of this world or am I preoccupied with things of God? Jesus asked, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Are you dwelling on earthly things or are you increasingly dwelling on things of God? That's the question. Do, do you not yet perceive or understand? Ask yourself, are you growing in seeing the beauty of Christ, in loving his word, longing to sit under his feet, desiring more and more to think of Jesus? Because if you're not, then you are spiritually deaf. If Jesus is not more and more beautiful to you, then you are actually perhaps already spiritually blind. Are your hearts hardened? I would, accept, I would suggest that we ask ourselves that question. We get another brother or sister in the church. Ask another sister, if you're a sister, look at my life. Do you, what do you make of the way I live? Because these are eternal issues. We cannot afford to have people, not our mom, not our dad, or somebody. we cannot afford to have another person in the life of the church and connected to us who can give us objective assessment whether we are truly standing in the faith. Not our wives. Someone this we don't often talk to who just observes us, who we think is, you know, loves the Lord, can give us honest advice. Is my heart hardening? And of course, we must ask ourselves question 18. Do you not remember <laughs> how much are we Remembering the glories of Christ. Are we growing in dwelling on these things? Uh, and we, if we can ask these questions honestly, we can come to him. Uh, and if we know that we have to ex- examine ourselves, we are not truly standing in the faith, then we must come in true repentance. That's God to give us a new heart that loves him. A new heart that longs to know him more and more. And God will do that. Because the same Jesus in the boat here is the same Jesus who would die on Golgotha. If we know anything about the opposition Jesus is facing, is that it is not by accident. He has allowed Judas to be there. He has allowed Herod to be of this way. He has allowed the Pharisees to do that. Why? Because Jesus is on a mission to die for our sins, to bring us to himself. So do not be afraid of these things, of asking, examining yourself. Because our Savior is fully sufficient. If we find that we are not standing in the faith, if we find that we are growing cold, you have in Christ a whole and perfect, sufficient Savior. He will work in your life. He will renew you. And if it's a new heart you need, he'll give you one. It's never too late. Well, it might be. We find out for others. But when we repent, it's never too late. Indeed, the Bible says, the first shall be last. And the last shall be we are never too old enough to examine ourselves we are never too changed enough to ask ourselves am I standing in the faith our saviour is fully sufficient